Luke 14. So overall journey to Jerusalem focus. What does it mean to be a disciple? That's what we've been looking at today. Jesus gives some very specific bullet points on what it means to follow him. We haven't seen this up to this point where he's been quite so direct in order for us to get the context, because the things he says are very difficult to get, or at least for me, they can be difficult to get my mind around. I'm going to go back and grab the last parable from last week. So if you remember, Jesus is at the home of a Pharisee, uh, centered around a meal. He heals someone, and then he also uses the opportunity, using their behavior at the dinner, to talk to them some about the kingdom of God. And he closes that time with this parable. When one of those at the table with Jesus heard this, he said, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus said, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. So that's a parable. Remember we said a parable is a real life or excuse me, is a true-to-life story that conveys a spiritual meaning. You don't want to press the details too much or you get lost in the weeds. True-to-life story that conveys a spiritual meaning. The, the meaning here, God invites everybody into a relationship with him. The expected, those are the Jewish religious leaders, will reject and be rejected. The unexpected, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, Gentiles, will accept and be accepted. So that's what's going on. In this parable. And then leading straight out of that, Jesus gives some statements about what it means to follow him. Before we get to that, though, I want to reach back into Matthew. This is Matthew's version of that parable. Uh, I hope this will help some of you who are visual learners. This may be a better picture than some of the stuff we'll look at in Luke. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who've been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who've been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fat and calf have been butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. They paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent an army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. He said, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen." Seems like an extreme reaction to someone who's not dressed the right way. But you, the parable's the same up to that point, right? The, y- y'all saw the similarities. It's the same parable, same main point. There's a banquet. We're all invited to. The expected will be rejected and reject. They reject the invitation and will be rejected. The unexpected 
will accept the invitation and be accepted. But you have that tag, that second little scene there in Matthew's parable about this guy who's not wearing the right clothes. And the response is to throw him in, send him to hell. I mean, that's what the picture is, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which seems like a very extreme response to someone who is not dressed appropriately. So that picture in Matthew, Luke explains with bullet points. So what we're about to read in Luke is his explanation of that picture in Matthew of the person who gets thrown out. So you can keep both of those ideas in your mind. Large crowds are traveling with Jesus and turning to them. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even his own life, such a person can't be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me can't be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who don't give up everything you have can't be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. So, this idea, not wearing the right clothes and being thrown into hell, that's the, the, the picture of what we just read in Luke, both of those guys are both of those passages are answering the question: How do we accept this invitation? What is it? What must we do to be saved? How do we say yes to this invitation that's been issued to everyone? How can we be the accepting and acceptable, and not the rejecting and those who are rejected? Here's something that may help you in terms of keeping all of this in mind. All of these are terms in Luke. For salvation. You can see all of those. There are others. Some of you may be thinking of things that you've read in Matthew, Mark, or John, or in Paul's letters. There's lots of different ways in the Bible for saying the same thing, which is salvation, which is being reconciled to God. It's being saved from his wrath for our sin and being saved for relationship with him. Both of those things. Saved from his wrath, saved for relationship. That's what it means to become a Christian. These are all the different ways that Jesus talks about that. So what we're talking about today is how do we get that? Whichever label, whatever descriptor you want to use, what does it look like for us to say yes to this? That's what Jesus is trying to answer through the statements we just read and again through that, that last picture in Matthew. So we're going to jump in here, see what he says in Luke. First off, he's addressing the crowds. He was in a house. Now he's out on the road. He's addressing the crowds. So that means everything that follows is addressed to this mixed bag of people. Remember, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people following him at this time. Some are committed. Some are mildly interested. Some are hostile. And to all of them, he says, here's what it looks like to be on my team. So this stuff that we're about to read is not for elite super Christians. This is for anyone who wants to follow him, for anyone who wants to be saved, anyone who wants one of those descriptors, this is what is required of you. And he starts off with a couple of, to me, pretty uh, harsh demands. Hate your family and your life, 
take up your cross and follow me. Now, for some of you, hating your family is easy. You already do. But for others, that's a tough one. Hate your family and your life. Take up your cross and follow me. So what does he mean by hate your family? He's using it in a relative way, not in an absolute way. You can see this most clearly in Matthew. This is a parallel passage. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter, anyone who loves his wife or husband, anyone who loves himself more than me is not worthy of me. So when Jesus says, hate your family, what he means is, put me, Jesus, first. Put Jesus first. I'm your primary allegiance. Your primary allegiance is not mom and dad. It's not husband, wife. It's not your children. It's not even to yourself. I am. And so in comparison for how much you love me, it's going to look like you hate them at times. Because you're going, to, you're going to obey me, even if it means disobeying them. You're going to honor me, even if it means dishonoring them. It doesn't, you, you may never have to do that. Those, you may have parents, and it may never come down to you choosing between them and Jesus. You may be married, and it may never come down to you choosing between your spouse and Jesus. You may never, even on, personally, you may live a life in such a way there may never be anything required of you. But you have to choose between your own life. In him. But what he's saying is, you've got to be willing to do that. I'm first, I'm primary loyalty, I'm primary allegiance. And then he says, take up your cross, that's an instrument of death. Your cross is not your burden that you carry around, your cross is an instrument of death. It's like, take up your electric chair and follow me. That's what he's saying. Jesus' obedience was to the point of death, and he says that's the standard for you as well. You say yes all the way up to losing your life. He just said that. Love me more than you love your own life. Another way of saying that is take up your cross. Be willing to die. That Death is not an excuse for disobedience. That's a big statement. It's a strong demand. Your own safety is no reason to stop following me. And then he gives these two parables that both say make sure you know what you're getting into. You don't start building something unless you know you can finish it. Because if you can't, you've got a half-done project and everybody thinks you're a fool. If you're a king, the last thing you're going to do is engage in a battle if you don't have enough soldiers to win. You need to think about that stuff before you jump into it. Building if you don't have money is silly. Engaging in a battle if you don't have troops is suicidal. Don't do that. And then he says, in the same way, you've got to give up everything if you want to be my disciple. What he's saying is you need to know on the front end what this thing is going to look like. I don't want you to start and not be able to finish. He's not looking for rash, emotional decisions. He's not looking necessarily for a spontaneous yes. What he's saying is, have you really thought about this? Do you know what I'm asking? Are you willing to put me first, to hate even your family in your own life? Are you willing to the point of death to follow me? Are you willing to give up everything that you've got? If you're not, then let's not get started. And then he gives this weird picture about salt. This is not true for salt for us, but trust me, salt for them could lose its saltiness. Without all the chemistry behind it, just know that that's true. Palestinian salt could lose its saltiness. And then it's worthless. It's not worth anything. It's useless. You you can't do anything with it. And Jesus says, at that point, it's thrown out. Just like that guy who's not wearing the right clothes. Thrown out. That salt is another picture of someone who starts and doesn't finish. Begins salty, yes, but then loses its saltiness, so it's tossed out. So what Jesus is saying is make sure you know what you're saying yes to. 
You may have grown up in church and heard the phrase, count the cost. Make sure you've done that before you say yes. So what does this look like for us? How do we live this thing out? These are, to me, these are high, this is a high bar that he's setting. Hate family, hate my own life, take up my cross, follow him, give up everything. That sounds very intimidating. How am I on the front end to know how, how am I supposed to know if I'm actually going to follow through with that and be willing to, to walk with him over the course of my life? A couple of things I want you thinking about. Uh, this is a picture to me, or these are some phrases. What must we do to be saved? All in Luke, you have these different phrases that Jesus uses. They're all, in my opinion, they're all synonyms. There's not 12 conditions for being saved, 12 conditions for becoming a Christian, for being a disciple. These are all different ways of saying the same thing. Now, for us, we're going to use two of these that I think are, you could pick any of them as umbrella terms. The two I'm going to pick, because I think they're the clearest, are give up everything and follow him. The idea of repentance, I think we, it's difficult for us. That's not a word that we normally use. Believe for us tends to be what we think, not necessarily Tied into trust. All of those things are fine. None of these are wrong. I'm just picking give up everything and follow him because I think that's stuff that we can grab onto and kind of get our minds around the easiest. So what does it mean? What must we do to be saved? We must give up everything and we must follow him. When I say that, I don't want you to hear me talking sequentially. It's not step one, give up everything and step two, follow him. It's more cyclical. They feed off of each other. And the essence, to me, of the invitation is follow me. That's why it's written bigger than give up everything. I think give up everything is a necessary condition. At times, in order to follow Jesus, I'm going to have to give things up. But the point is not about the giving up. The point is about the following. The point is about that he's invited me into relationship with him. Many of you are married. When you proposed to your spouse now, or when, as a woman, if you said yes... You, at that point, were giving up your singleness. But you weren't, in that moment, you weren't necessarily thinking about that. You were thinking about what you were entering into, this lifelong relationship with this man or this woman. The giving up was a necessary condition. You had to give it up, but that, was, that wasn't the point. When you said yes, I hope you weren't thinking about the sacrifice you were making, or you need to come see me. That's not what you were thinking about. You were thinking about what you were gaining. Does that make sense? So when we're talking about following Jesus, giving up everything is real, but it's, to me, it's, I want to say it's secondary, but I'm not sure that's a great word. I see it as a necessary condition in order to enter into the bigger reality, the essence, which is following him. That's what he says to the disciples. If you go back and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when Jesus calls the disciples, we see these little snippets And he says to them, follow me, and they drop their nets. They're giving up their business to follow him. Follow me, and they leave their father. They're giving up their family in order to follow him. Follow me, and Matthew walks away from the tax collector's booth. That's his job in order to follow Jesus. You see that? They had to give something up in order to follow, but the deal is the following. And so as we're talking, I want you to have both of those things in mind. I don't want you to see step one, give up everything. Step two, follow. That's impossible to try to do all of that on the front end, to think through all of the things you have to give up. Much more so, I want you to hear the essence of the invitation. Follow me. And at times, there may be things that you have to give up along the way in order to make that happen. So I'm going to embarrass you and you. Come on. 
It's a shame I know your name. Come here. Ben and Tom. Ben is Jesus for us. He would, I think Jesus probably looked like this, tall and strapping. Tom is a follower of Jesus. So, Jesus walked about a thousand miles. Y'all, are y'all going to come to church again? No. So, Jesus walked about a thousand miles in his life. And so, for the disciples, it was easy. They saw him and they literally walked after him. For us, we don't get that. That's one of the reasons we emphasize hearing God so much. Because you don't see him walking through your life telling you what to do. You can't. You can't do that. We don't have this visual. So it's important for us to be led by the Spirit. That's why he focused so much on hearing God. So what Jesus, Ben, says to Thomas, follow me, start walking. And you follow. That's it, right? Easy, you get that. Sometimes you're really close. Right? You feel that. It's okay. Stay behind him. Sometimes you feel that way. You're like, oh, we're tight. I know what's going on. Sometimes, go. We drag a little bit. You ever do that? You're like, oh, there's a distance between us. You're still following. There's just more of a gap. So this is reality for us. Jesus invites us to follow him. That's Ben. And we say yes and start to follow. We can't see him, but that's what we're doing. We're following the Lord. That's the invitation to every one of us. It's an invitation to relationship. So, sorry, front row. So this is Garrett, who is wonderful. So here's what we're going to do. Now, he says you've got to be willing to give up everything. In our verse, it said, hate your family. So we have Jesus and we have our follower. You're this way. You're this way. You're mama. So Garrett's like, Garrett's like, Garrett's like family. So ideally, as a parent, this is what you're doing. As a parent, what you're saying is, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus. So ideally, what Garrett's doing as a mom and she's turning around to Tom and saying, she's following Jesus, go. And she can turn around and say, watch what I'm doing and do what I'm doing. Does that make sense? As a parent, that's what, that's what it should look like. You should be giving your kids tangible, visible examples of what it means to follow him. That's not just about how you read your Bible. It's how you live your life and how you deal with people. Does that make sense? Now, at times, good things begin to compete With Jesus, good things ask for loyalty or allegiance. And so Garrett ideally is doing this. So Tom is 14 and ideally as he's getting older, what Garrett is going to begin to do is slip out of the way and she's going to do this and she's not going to be in between them any longer. As a parent, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, that's what you're doing. You're getting out of the way so that your kids can follow Jesus without you in the middle. Does that make sense? That's your job as a parent. What we do sometimes when we think about hating our families or people having to choose between our family and us or Jesus, we think of other religions. Well, if you say yes to Jesus, then as a Muslim, you may lose your family. Absolutely. But that's not where we live. Where we live is with the best of intentions. Let's try again. With the best of intentions, Garrett at some point turns to Tom and says, I want you to be a missionary in Africa. That's what I want for you. And what Jesus is saying to Tom is, I want you to go to law school and be rich. And so he has to decide, do I follow? What's happened is now parent and Jesus are not walking in the same direction. And Tom's got to make a choice. That's what happens to us sometimes with the best of intentions, the purest motives. Tom can't follow mom and dad and follow Jesus because she's saying move to Africa and he's saying go to law school. 
And so Tom can't do both. As parents, we don't want to ever put our kids in that position, but we do with the best of intentions. And so that's why he says you've got to be willing to hate your family. Tom's got to be willing to tell mom, I love you, but I can't. For me to do what you're at, for me to move to Africa is to disobey Jesus, and I can't do that. Does that make sense? You can sit down, thanks. You can't. So so that's where we want, that's kind of that whole idea of hating. At some point, we've got to be willing to make that decision that says, I'm going to pick him even over primary relationships. If you're sitting in the room and you're 14, not yet. Don't use this as an excuse to rebel against your parents. Jesus told me to get a tattoo. No, he didn't. He didn't. So you don't hear me saying that. But as you get older, it's going to come. And there could be those breaks for you. When I was 20... I was in a pre-engineering program. I was getting a degree from both Georgia and Georgia Tech. And after my sophomore year, I realized I would not drive over a bridge that I designed, so nobody else should. And so I I changed. And I felt like God was saying to me, ministry, that's the thing for you. And I went home and I told my mom and said, I changed my major. And she said, to what? And I said, crop sciences, which is not not the smartest decision I've ever made, particularly... Because there's so many crops around here that need sciencing. So what she said to me was, listen, I'm good. You can do that ministry stuff. I need you to, you've got to have a real major. No offense to crop science people. She said, go to do math education. Now, she said, have a fallback, which is not exactly a confidence builder for somebody who's stepping out. But she said, you need a fallback. So at that point, it wasn't for me. Like, I could still do what... Mom wanted me to do and what I felt God was telling me to do. It wasn't what I wanted. Does that make sense? But I was able to do both. For for all of us, we need to recognize what competes for allegiance. For most of you, if you're an adult, it's not your parents. It may be your job. It may be your definition of success. It may be what you think the good life is. This is not how I thought I would be spending my 40s or my 50s. I had this money set aside for this or this time for this. Does that make sense? So that's one question you're asking. What competes for allegiance? Ideally, those things in your life that are good help you follow him. But at times, even those good things compete, and then you've got to make a decision on who's first. Last time, and then you guys will get to sit down. Maybe I'll go get a Coke or something as a reward. So here, (laughs) Jesus says go. Now at times, when we're following, you go, there are things that hold us back and keep us from going. Those are the the sinful things, usually. The things that compete for our allegiance are usually good things. Most of us don't have a uh, temptation to be loyal to stuff that's going to be terrible for us. But there are things in our life, try to walk, that keep us, this is new, don't rip it. So, (laughs) there are things that make it harder for us to follow. He can still go, it's just a lot harder than it should be for him. Sinful thoughts, sinful behaviors, fear. That kind of stuff. And that stuff, what Tom needs to do, according to Hebrews, is cut it off. So he just needs to turn around and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. And then he's free to follow. You guys can sit down. Thanks. So, um, all. They have never clapped for me. So y'all should be happy about that. So when it comes to following, that's the invitation. At times, in order to do that, You're going to have to give things up. You may have to give up good things that are competing with your loyalty 
or your allegiance. You absolutely need to get rid of weights, hindrances that are holding you back. And those things tend to be things that are bad for you anyway. Sins of the flesh, and you can kind of figure out what goes under that category. Fear can be one. Anxiety, apathy, those kinds of things you need to cut off because they're going to make you walk really slow. They don't prevent you from following. They just make it a whole lot harder. So that's the invitation for us. And I'm going to side, I'm going to step over here and talk about one thing. Uh, you don't have to agree with me on this, but this idea of following, I'm just going to round it out. At some point, you can choose to quit following. I said you can be really close or you can follow at a distance. There are times we even feel like we're kind of walking next to Jesus. He talks about his yoke. Oxen were yoked next to each other with the stronger leading the weaker, even though they were side to side at times. I think that's probably the ideal for us. But you can actually stop following. You don't have to agree with my theology on this, but here's mine. You can quit. You can be salt that loses its saltiness. You can be someone who says yes to the invitation and gets to the party and then gets thrown out. You can be someone who starts to build a tower and doesn't finish it. You can be someone who begins and doesn't end well with him. Now, I think when you stop walking, I think Jesus always circles back. Matthew 18, he pursues the lost sheep, speaking about us. And so just because you stop, that doesn't mean he keeps, he's going to keep coming back and coming back and coming back. But at some point, what he says, I believe, is if you don't want to be in a relationship with me, then okay. I, I desire to be in a relationship with you. If you don't want to reciprocate, then that's fine. I'm not going to make you follow me. I'm not going to do that. I think of salvation largely in relational terms. In Ephesians 5, the Bible, Paul says, we're the bride of Christ and Jesus is the groom. Just like I would say, you would, some of you may be hearing me say, he's saying we can lose our salvation. I'm not. I would never use that term. You can lose your car keys. You can't lose your salvation. That's, it's not an accident. It's not unintentional. It's something persistent and consistent. If you persistently and consistently stop following, at some point he says, okay, if you don't want to follow, then we're not going to do that. It's like a marriage. You don't lose your marriage, but you can get a divorce. If you persistently and consistently harden your heart towards your spouse, then it's done. And you, can get, you didn't lose it. You walked away from it. You hear what I'm saying in terms of an analogy. And so for us, I think, he says, follow me. We can be, really, we can be as close as we want. We can hang back and still, still be there. We can even have times where we quit and he circles back and says, hey, you still, on, you still in this. Let's go. And we can re-up with him time after time after time after time after time. But if we persistently and consistently say, no, I'm tired of doing that. I'm not interested in relationship with you. At some point, he says, okay, it's, it's, like, it's not like losing your car keys. It's like divorcing your spouse. That's what it, it's like. Does that make your salvation insecure? I hope not. It doesn't for me. The Bible says, Jesus says in John 10, 28 and 29, nobody can snatch you out of my hand. My father's greater than everybody. He's the biggest guy on the block. Nobody can separate you from me. Romans 8, 38 and 39. Nothing external to me can separate me from God. Does that make sense? So I don't have to worry about that. Jesus says, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm with you to the end of the age. That means he's never going to initiate divorce proceedings with me. 
He's never going to do that. But if I walk out on him, so to speak, and he comes back again and again and again, and I continue to say, no, 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 at some point he says, okay, we're done. That to me, that doesn't make my salvation insecure. What that says to me is as long as I'm willing to be in relationship, then I'll have relationship. And if at some point, if I persistently and consistently say, I don't want relationship, then he says, okay, he just gives me what I want. Either way, I'm getting what I want. If I want relationship, I have it. Nothing outside of me is going to separate me from him, and he's not going to walk away from me. If I don't want relationship, then I don't get it. I don't know if that, I hope that helps. You don't have to believe that if you don't want to. Other people have a different theology. They would say someone who quits following was never a Christian in the first place. That's fine with me. I don't know that that's, it's fine. Either way. But I just wanted you all to hear from, from me kind of the fuller picture to me of what it looks like to follow and our ongoing responsibility. But I don't want you to hear that as pressure. This is Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Why? Because the wedding of the Lamb, that's the event that these two parables that we read in Matthew and Luke point to. The wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride, that's us, has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. You see there, was given her to wear. We received something from God, but what have we received? Our own righteous acts. So you see there the interplay between God's initiative, His grace, and our responsibility, our response to Him. We're given something that's what we do. Hard to put those things together in your mind. What I want you to grab onto is both. God is taking initiative. And His grace is available for all of this. This is not pressure for you to figure out how to hate your family or to figure out how to take up your cross and follow him. It's not pressure for you to try to determine what do you need to give up. It's an invitation into relationship and grace is given to us. So the thing I would encourage you, one, deeper devotion to Jesus. Every significant relationship you have requires sacrifice. Friendship, marriage, parenting, any significant relationship requires sacrifice. And if you're in that relationship, most likely you are not daily tallying what you've given up. If you are, you're miserable. You are, because you're constantly saying, look what I'm giving up for this person. You're not doing that. You remember that first time you met the first person and you're like, I'm in love and all of that stuff. You remember that. And you stayed up all night talking to them on the phone. Did you consider it a sacrifice that you were tired the next morning? No. It was the greatest thing in the world to you. Because it wasn't about what you were giving up. It's about what you were gaining relationship with this person. Deeper devotion to him. Focus less on what you're giving up and more on what you're gaining. How do I do that? I don't know how to do that. You ask. Ephesians three eighteen to 20. Paul prays a prayer. I'm praying that God will give you grace, that God will strengthen you, that he will enable you to grasp how long and wide and high, how long and wide and high and deep is the love of Christ. That's where we want to get. I don't have to stir up passion for Jesus in my own heart. I can say to him, God, I need your grace. I need you to help me understand how much you love me. That sounds weird to pray. But that's that song that we just sang. God, I need to, I need to get this. So help me. I don't want to focus on what you're asking me to give up. I want to be so devoted, so affectionate towards you, that these things are trivial to me. 
that I'm so much more focused on what I'm gaining in relationship with you that I'm happy to give up whatever gets in the way. And you don't have to stir that up on your own. Ask Him for help. Given to you. Second thing is ask Him, what's getting in the way? You don't have to try to come up with that on your own either. God, what in my life is competing with allegiance to you? What is fighting for my loyalty? Most likely it's a good thing, and most likely it's not even that thing's fault. It's us. Is my picture of what my life was supposed to look like, is that competing with loyalty for you? I talk to people all the time who say, I didn't sign up for this. I have yet to talk to someone who said, this is exactly what I bargained for. Nobody has ever said that to me. It's never what we think it's going to be. Whatever it is. But sometimes our picture of it, this is what my life was going to be. This is what my 30s were going to look like or my 40s. or my, This is what retirement was going to look like. I had this money set aside for this and this time to do that. And he starts poking at those things. And our version of the good life, what we thought, can compete with him for our loyalty. It may be something else, but most likely it's a good thing. So I'm asking him, God, what's competing for my attention? And then I'm saying, God, is there anything that's holding me back? Is it fear? Is it sins of my flesh? Is it negative thought patterns? What, what is it? Is there anything that's pulling on me, that's hindering me, that's keeping me from moving quickly and hard after you? And when he brings those things up, you don't have to even take care of that. You just ask him, I need help. I need you to give me grace to cut off this stuff that's dragging me down. I need you to give me grace to put this other thing in proper perspective. Underneath my loyalty to you. I don't want you to hear this as pressure to perform. You don't walk out of here saying, I got to go hate my family. You walk out of here saying, I want to give up everything in order to follow him. And God, I need your grace to do both. Let's pray. You don't know this most likely. You weren't. But a king, that setting of that parable, if a king invited you to the wedding of his son, he would give you clothes to wear. You don't have to come up with your own outfit. If you were invited to something that big, you would show up and he would give you clothes. Remember, you RSVP'd in advance. So he already know you. You already had said yes. So he would have clothes for you waiting. So this guy that gets rebuked for not wearing the right clothes and he winds up getting thrown out, it's not because he didn't have the right stuff in his closet. It's because he didn't put on what the king gave him when he got to the castle. That's the picture for us. God extends grace to you. He, everything he's asking you to do, he will enable you to do if you ask him for his grace. So God, I pray for us, men and women. God, even with Garrett and Ben and Tom as freshmen in high school. God, I pray that we would all be people who follow after you. I pray that you would deepen our affection and our devotion for you so that when it comes time to give something up, it would pale in comparison with what we're gaining. Jim Elliott was a missionary in South America in the 40s and 50s. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose.
And God, I pray for us. I pray for our kids. And I pray for us as adults in this room. And we would be so deeply devoted to you that we could say with him, absolutely. I'll give up whatever gets in the way of following. So on your heart, if you're willing to pray this along with me, you can. If you struggle with kind of the devotion aspect, maybe you feel like you're a little bit distant, your passion for Jesus is not really really that high. God, I pray that you would give me grace to comprehend the fullness of your love for me. If you've never said yes to Jesus, that's a great prayer to pray. God, show me, show me, show me how much you love me. Give up everything. No, just, God, is there anything in my life, you can pray this if you're willing, that's competing with my allegiance to you? Anything that's fighting for my loyalty? Something popped into your mind, then you can just pray this if you're willing. God, I pray that you would give me grace to put that thing, that relationship, that idea, whatever it is, in its rightful place in my life. You're first, Jesus. You're my primary. Give me grace to put that thing where it belongs. If you're willing to pray this, God, show me. Is there anything that's holding me back? Any hindrances? Anything that's weighing me down? If you're willing, God, I confess that's, that's an issue. And it's, it is slow. It's a weight on my back. It's chains around my ankles. And I'm asking you to set me free. Give me grace there. To leave that thing behind so I can follow fully and freely after you. In Jesus' name, amen.